Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you, and enjoy. Hello and welcome to PrimeMed's podcast, Who is at Risk for Shingles and Why? This is the first in a series of three podcasts titled Taking Aim Against Shingles, Strategies for Success. It's my pleasure today to introduce Dr. M. Susan Burke. She is a clinical associate professor of medicine at Sidney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and senior advisor of Lankanaw Medical Associates at the Lankanaw Medical Center in Wynwood, Pennsylvania. Before we get started, let me remind everyone that this podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. For more information, please visit the activity page for this podcast on www.primed.com. Now I'll turn it over to Dr. Burke. Thank you, Lee, and hello, everyone. Uh, Today, in our first podcast, uh, I will be reviewing the epidemiology of shingles, what risk factors are involved in developing shingles, as well as a little bit about pathophysiology. We'll talk about how shingles presents because uh, I'm understanding from some of the younger clinicians that they don't get to see shingles as often. So we'll talk about the prodromal pain as well as some diagnostic conundrums that we can run into in the differential diagnosis of shingles. First question, who is at risk for shingles and why? Well, actually, let's cover the what and the how first. Uh, What is shingles and how are we at risk? So shingles or herpes zoster happens years after an episode of chickenpox or much less commonly after vaccination with the varicella vaccine because that vaccine is a live attenuated form of the varicella virus. Varicella zoster virus establishes itself lifelong after this chickenpox in the neurons of sensory ganglia in the spinal column. So there's actually viral DNA in cell nuclei but no viral replication because our cell-mediated immunity that we all naturally have keeps the replication in check until reactivation occurs during immune suppression. So the central role of varicella zoster virus cell-mediated immunity explains two features of shingles. One is the increased incidence of shingles with age or as people who have heard me lecture before say, with receding youth, because this cell-mediated immunity declines with increasing age or receding youth. And the second central role is the increased incidence of shingles in immunocompromised individuals because cell-mediated immunity is depressed in these folks. 
So now I can answer the question, who is at risk for shingles and why? About 99% of U.S. adults age 50 and older are susceptible to shingles or herpes zoster because they have had varicella in their childhood. So most adults 50 and older haven't had the luxury of being able to be vaccinated. They had chickenpox the old-fashioned way. And although shingles can occur at any age, the prevalence increases at about age 50. In fact, there are over 40 million 50 to 59-year-olds, and about 20% or so of all herpes zoster episodes occur in that 50 to 59-year group. Around half of cases occur over the age of 60. But we've all seen younger folks. We've seen people even in their teens or in college, or I have actually had several residents over the years in my um, hospital who have told me that they got shingles when they were <laughs> in medical school. So stress can definitely bring out a shingles episode. Unfortunately, as many as half of individuals who live to age 85 will have herpes zoster at some point in their lives. So if you get to the, that ripe old age, you have a 50-50 chance, as unfortunately both my parents ended up having shingles when they uh, were in their 80s. Not only is the frequency higher with advancing age, but so is the severity. Not only that, but zoster disease carries the risk of long-term complications, including the most dreaded one, which is post-herpetic neuralgia. This is a common debilitating sequela of herpes zoster, and it can affect up to 60 to 70 percent of patient, patients age 60 and older. We'll hear in a later podcast that the new recombinant zoster vaccine is indicated to be given to the age group of 50 and older because that's where we really see the incidence increase. Unlike the previously available older live vaccine, which the ACIP had recommended for those 60 and older. So we'll, we'll again hear in a later podcast some of the differences between those two vaccines and how we can help reduce the incidence of shingles moving forward in our patient population. So <laughs> that was a long-winded way of saying aging or receding youth is a big risk factor due to waning immunity. So what are some other risk factors besides age? Well, interestingly, it also occurs more frequently in women than in men, and Caucasians seem to have a higher incidence than African Americans. Also, anything that reduces varicella zoster virus-specific cell-mediated immunity besides age, such as an immunocompromise of some sort. For example, HIV-AIDS, before vaccines, there was up to a 17-fold greater risk of developing zoster compared to someone who was HIV-negative. Hematologic malignancy and lymphomas, again, before vaccination, the cumulative incidence uh, 
was up to 25% and even 33% in those who had had bone marrow transplants. Immunosuppressive therapy, high-dose steroids and chemo can also increase your risk because you're affecting that cell-mediated immunity. Some lesser appreciated risks include autoimmune diseases such as RA and SLE. Finally, as I mentioned, the psychologic stress, it can definitely occur following stressful events. And I've seen several cases of physical trauma is listed as a risk for um, herpes zoster. I, I've heard of cases of people who broke their ankle and they got zoster in that affected dermatome. I've personally had a patient who had a port placement for breast cancer and broke out several days later with zoster in that affected uh, dermatome as the port. So physical trauma is clearly a, a contributor. Dental work can also trigger zoster uh, in the, you know, a facial distribution. How does zoster or shingles present? Well, it most often presents as a rash. But first, there's usually a prodrome of dermatomal pain, so just in the one area for the most part. And that can last generally two to five days before that characteristic rash develops. I have actually heard of a prodrome lasting weeks or months, and I've even heard up to 100 days of this preliminary pain that's neuropathic, and we'll describe that a little bit more, in a, a single nerve distribution. Because, you know, the herpes zoster virus is hanging out in the uh, dorsal root ganglia. So it's popping out. It's, it, it finally frees itself from latency and pops out usually in a single nerve root, a single dermatome. It's important to note then that varicella zoster virus infection, herpes zoster, is not just a rash, but it's actually an acute neurologic disease that has to be taken seriously and certainly taken seriously by the patient. We'll hear more about shingles complications in the next podcast of this series. But let me describe the rash a second. The rash is initially maculopapular then vesicular with an erythematous base. So grouped vesicles on an erythematous base is the classic description of zoster. And it actually looks very similar to a chickenpox rash. And again, I think a lot of the younger clinicians may not have seen too many cases of chickenpox in their uh, young careers. So it pops out in one dermatome. It's usually unilateral although it can slightly overlap the midline. And it's usually one dermatome or maybe two uh, contiguous dermatomes. And it can be associated with pain or other abnormal sensations in that area for, as I say, at least a few days before the characteristic rash pops out. And a lot of times the patients don't know that they have a rash. The rash might only be on their back and they're feeling this all around in a dermatomal area like on their uh, thoracic area, for example. It, the rash evolves over seven to 10 days and healing occurs over the next two to four weeks. Something that's really 
hard to diagnose is a reactivation of herpes zoster, which can involve pain exactly like I described, but without that characteristic rash. And that's called zoster sine herpete, which is Latin for zoster without a rash. Rash may not look typical in someone who's immunocompromised. And early on in my career, I saw many cases of disseminated zoster before the uh, widespread use of antivirals. You, you'd see somebody who presented not just with the dermatonal rash, but then they had uh, vesicular lesions all around their body, and uh, you know, you'd end up uh, admitting them. What are some common locations for the zoster rash? The typical locations uh, I alluded to, thoracic, that's a very common, about over half of the cases occur in the thoracic region. About 13% occur in the lumbar region, and about 13, 15% or more occur in the cranial distribution. So the uh, trigeminal nerve is often involved and can be quite devastating. We'll talk about that soon. Uh, some in the cervical, sacral areas, and, and so forth. But the, the big hits are the thoracic, lumbar, and cranial uh, areas. Is it always easy to diagnose? Unfortunately, not really. That prodrome of acute pain and paresthesias may actually be, be mistaken for other painful conditions. Depending on that pain location, people have been diagnosed as migraines until the rash came out, or glaucoma, or an MI. We've all heard stories of somebody being admitted to the intensive care unit with significant chest pain, even though they, their uh, EKGs were not that remarkable. And the next day, you go in to examine them, and you see the characteristic rash on their chest. Pleurisy, duodenal ulcer, these are all, you know, mistaken diagnoses that can crop out of the pain that the patient presents with before they present with that characteristic rash. The cutaneous manifestations can also appear similar to other rashes, and this is part of the diagnostic conundrums that we can run into. You see the rash, but, for example, zosteriform herpes simplex is a frequent error in diagnosis. It can be linear. It heals more rapidly than herpes zoster from varicella, um, and it's likely to produce less pain. And that can occur in the same area. Now, what I've also seen is patients, we've, we may have had patients, uh, I know I've had several in my practice who say, oh, I keep getting shingles on my rear end. Well, be wary if somebody says that because it's rarely that it's shingles recurring that often. It's much more likely that it's a herpes simplex that's breaking out classically uh, several times over that patient's lifetime in that same uh, nerve area. There's also an occasional confusion with contact dermatitis. I remember a case of a woman with a vesicular rash on her neck who went to the emergency room and she was diagnosed as poison ivy because the emergency room uh, clinician said, oh, she was at a uh, picnic the morning that the rash started. Well, that was a totally unrelated event. They figured that she must have been exposed to poison ivy. 
She was sent to our practice. Uh, fortunately, we diagnosed it as zoster. It was very classic. It didn't cross the midline. It was a classic um, cervical uh, herpes zoster, and we started her on antivirals. If in doubt, always look for those group or grape-like vesicles on an erythematous base. That's really going to be your best clue as to whether something is actually herpes zoster. So what do we see in our practice? About 30% of people will make a visit for this prodromal pain. So it's important to recognize that their pain may be zoster, even though the rash hasn't popped out yet. What, you know, we, we all like sometimes we'll scratch our head, why is this person having this pain in this particular distribution? But ask a few questions about how the pain started and what is the nature of the pain, because it's often a neuropathic-y kind of discomfort that the patient will describe once you pull that out of them a little bit. On average, about three ambulatory visits per herpes zoster case can be expected, and about 4% of cases are actually hospitalized. I've seen cases of secondary superinfection, especially, say, uh, in the trigeminal or ocular distribution where somebody developed a secondary bacterial infection uh, and uh, read, needed uh, IV antibiotics in addition to antivirals. Again, the rash may not look as typical in someone who's immunocompromised. So I'd like to conclude this podcast by just summarizing that zoster is a reactivation of the latent varicella zoster virus related to chickenpox. It's the same thing, living latently in our dorsal root ganglia, and it crops out in our lives due to the loss of cell-mediated immunity to this uh, virus. The frequency and severity of zoster increases with aging and diseases related to decreased cell-mediated immunity. We'll hear in a later podcast how strategies to prevent zoster occurrence through the use of vaccination has had a significant and dramatic impact on reducing disease burden in susceptible populations. This has been an exciting discussion, and we are delighted that you have participated. To obtain your CME credit, please visit primemed.com and complete a short post-assessment. If you listen to this podcast on another platform, please refer to the episode description where there is a direct link to the activity page on primemed.com for claiming CME credit. Please join us next time for the second installment of this podcast series, Why Is It So Important to Prevent Shingles, on www.primed.com. We thank you again for joining Primed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.